It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesday edition of our podcast. Today, we are joined by one of my favorite former colleagues. He's from a different part of the country, from a different political party, but you would be hard-pressed to find a more decent person than Vermont Senator Peter Welch. He's been in the private world of law firms, been a public defender, has been in state politics and been in national politics for for a little while now. And he joins us today. Welcome to you, Senator, and happy early birthday, if I am correct. You have a birthday coming up, maybe tomorrow. Well, it may be tomorrow. We'll see uh, how good your research folks have done on that. But Trey, it's good to see you. We miss you in Washington. The place has gone to pot ever since you returned to South Carolina and, and you know, resume, got into your new career and and, uh, and sharpened up your handicap. It's just a mess around here without Trey Gowdy. Oh, I don't know that I could fix any of that, but I loved working with you. Um, <laughs> you were. And you know what? Well, I'm going to ask you about this later on. You know, in the old days, it, it would be viewed as a compliment for your constituents to hear that you were really not just respected, but liked by people on both sides of the aisle. In the old days, they would think, well, you know what? We got a good guy. Everybody likes him. I, I wonder if that's still true. No, it's. It, I don't think it is so true, and it, it's. Uh, it's like this: embrace a conflict instead of uh, collaboration. You know, the good things that most of us get done in life, uh, we've had some help along the way, and it's uh, working with other people. But you know, I got. I had an experience early in my. I wouldn't call it my political career, but my life in Vermont. We have town meeting, and we're having a wicked battle uh, on the budget. In debating it in the town. And uh, I was a Democrat. I was for spending more. <laughs> okay. And this person was arguing against me and uh, he was for less. And it was a pretty heated argument. And I left kind of blue because I lost. That afternoon, I went to pick my son up uh, at hockey practice. And who was coaching him? But the guy who won the argument, right? And I mean, he was really coaching him. He was paying attention to my son. And showing him, you know, how to get himself in position. And I'm thinking, how can I stay mad at this guy? You know, he's <laughs> and there's a lot of that in our democracy and in our life. It's so much more enjoyable if, yes, you really fiercely advocate for your ideas, but you never lose sight of the fact that most of the time, the people that are arguing the other way. Uh, have the same goal. They they want to have, in this case, a better town of Heartland, better school board. Uh, and here he was us disagreeing there, but on something far more important, you know, he was really putting attention into not just my kid, but the kids in the town. So it's kind of a missing, you know, muscle memory here where 
you have this sense that the folks that are arguing the other side of the issue, by and large, want to get the same outcome, a better country. And uh, it gets very personal. And then I think that gets in the way of, uh, A, getting some good things done together, uh, and B, having a better time in the process of doing it. Well, I'm going to prove before we're done, I'm going to prove to people that you you actually are part of that old muscle memory. One, one of my one of my favorite recollections of Peter Welch. I'm going to I'm going to save that for later. I want to know what Peter Welch was like growing up. Well, I, I like sports. I remember that I was I was a, I was a three sports star uh, in my own mind. <laughs> OK, <laughs> I. uh I played football until uh, a five foot eight, 140 pound of uh, free safety and quarterback who couldn't throw more than 25 yards got replaced by somebody <laughs> who was bigger, faster and could throw longer. Uh, I played baseball until uh, it was revealed that until I saw my first real curveball. And to this day, I'm in shock at how much <laughs> I missed that pitch by. So I ended up playing basketball. And the high point of my career, Trey, was uh, we, I was this I was the point guard on uh, the Cathedral High School uh, Springfield Mass Championship basketball team, and and that you know it's been pretty much downhill for me since. But the memory, <laughs> the memory of winning that championship is still with me. A three sports star, you, yeah, I, I... in my own mind. <laughs> And I did play golf. You know, I used to, I know you're such a great golfer. You know, every once in a while you'd show up for work when you were in Congress and uh, <laughs> you'd come in with, with a fresh sunburn. But yeah, uh, well, I, I, I was usually the- with, with John Yarmouth or, or Joe Courtney or somebody from your side of the aisle. Well, I was not I, by myself. No, no, you weren't. There, there, were, there were other, uh, you know, uh, miscreants here in Congress. You weren't alone. But uh I, I I really did love sports. But the other thing, I went to Catholic schools uh, growing up, neighborhood schools. You know, when I grew up in Springfield, Mass., when you asked somebody where they were from, uh, the answer was what parish you were in. You know, that that's what it would be. And uh, I went to Catholic high school, grammar school, high school and college and had Jesuits in college. But, you know, when I was you know, a young person, uh, the one thing I so remember uh, about that was this orientation towards service. And of course, when I was growing up, the civil rights movement was really in voting rights and all the struggles there. And, and, and that just captured my attention by the time I was in college. And I ended up leaving college uh, for a year and uh, spending two years in Chicago doing community organizing on housing discrimination. And I did that uh, with an organization that was affiliated with Martin Luther King. And of course, one of the most memorable moments in my life is when I was a, the summer between my sophomore and junior year, um, I met Martin Luther King uh, when I went down to Atlanta and he was preaching at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. And, uh, and, and what, you know, you're a lawyer and, and we're both lawyers. But what I remember in Chicago, and this has kind of stuck with me through my political career, was that when folks couldn't get a house, black folks, the Veterans Administration it was legal for them to not guarantee a mortgage because it was a black family. The banks legally could deny a mortgage to a qualified buyer who lived in a black neighborhood. They had a law that for black folks buying on contract, as opposed to a mortgage, if they missed a payment after 10 years, you know, one of the uh, parents got sick 
uh, they, they had a layoff at work, they would lose their whole home. The whole home, you would, they'd lose all the equity they had in there. And the two things that are still with me was that, you know, we got documentation of this and then we began organizing and then demonstrating in front of the banks to demand mortgages, in front of the uh, Veterans Administration to demand that they uh, insure the mortgages. So I saw two things that stuck with me. One was the power of people getting together, working together to stand up for themselves. And the second thing that was so shocking to me, Trey, was that a lot of these terrible things that were happening that are so outrageous and indefensible, they were legal. They were absolutely legal. So I think it kind of is what inspired me to get involved both in law and in politics, because uh, as a lawyer, you can stand up and uh, help people get their rights. And as a politician, you can try to change laws so that there's an opportunity for people uh, to make the best lives they can possibly make. So those were searing experiences for me when I was was younger. All right. Your ability that I noticed when we worked together at your ability to frankly try to see life through the eyes of people who who have a different political persuasion than you have. You just went through part of your youth, your ability to see life through the eyes of a black man or a black woman. Where did that come from? Was it your your religious upbringing? Is it, was it faith? Was it your parents? Where did the ability to look at life through someone else's eyes come from? You know, I don't really, really know. Here's what I, here's what I do know. My mother was a very accepting person. Uh, and I think a lot of that uh, came from her because she, I, she was always able to point out uh, the good in somebody else. Um, and I think that, you know, it's almost in retrospect that I see how uh, durable a quality and how uh, formative a quality that was uh, in her. And uh, so, so that was important. And secondly, I do think going to those Catholic schools all those years where <laughs> there's lots of stories about the nuns uh, and we all have stories about our growing up. But there was a real emphasis on service. And service had to be about seeing how other people were struggling and to try to put yourself a little bit, not just in their shoes, but take yourself out of the center of every equation. And uh, I mean, you've got this quality yourself. I mean, you, you see the humor in a situation. And part of the ability to see that, I think, is when you take yourself out of uh, the center of every interaction that happens. And I actually think playing sports was helpful. I love playing sports and I moved around uh, Springfield looking for where the best basketball games were and where the best, you know, football games were, but it's such a team oriented activity and where uh, you're with all kinds of different uh, people. Uh, and that was true for me in playing sports. So it's just a way to try to be able to get on the team and a way to become an important part of the team is, uh, I think, the ability to figure out how you can fit in and be part of a team. So that sports was a big deal for me growing up. I wish I, (laughs) I wish I was half as good as I remember myself to be. (laughs) All right. How in the world did you get to California for law school? And then of all in the law school you went to was very, very highly regarded. So you could have gone and done something else, but you decided to be a public defender, which is 
about the, the least lucrative way that you can use a law degree. So <laughs> both of those, California and then taking a vow of poverty, being a being a public defender. Well, I was uh, working in Chicago. I was a Robert Kennedy fellow after I got out of law school and Robert Kennedy was assassinated. The family memorial, you know, was not a library or an institution. It was funding about 30 young people around the country who were doing community organizing activities that the family believed were consistent with Robert Kennedy values. So I was in Chicago, but as I mentioned earlier, as I was coming to the end of my couple of years with the what was called the Contract Buyers League, and I had that experience of seeing how the law made a difference, um, I decided to go to law school. And frankly, I went to California because I'd never been there. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I heard it was warm. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did. The law school was great. And while I was, you know, those were the days, Trey, where I went to law school and the tuition was like uh, $1,500. And my second year, it was legal to uh, become, get, get the $600 in-state tuition. And for room and board, I, I worked as a public defender for a year. I worked as a legal aid attorney for a year. And I worked in the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law for a year. So I really, really did uh, love what that that law school and law school education and the training. Uh, but I have to say, I didn't have a big fancy reason for going to to Berkeley, other than that it looked, uh, you know, it was California and it was a really, really nice place to be. But when I got out, I did make a decision. You know, I went to uh, I, I traveled for six months through, basically backpack through Central America, South America down in Chile and over to Brazil and got a ran out of money and got a job on a freighter. And they dropped me off in Lisbon, Portugal. And by that point, I had enough money to fly home. But my decision was, do I want to work on Wall Street or K Street? Because I wanted to come back east where my family was. And I ended up on Bridge Street in uh, White River Junction, uh, Vermont. And as you know, that's a, a well-known financial uh, center. Uh, uh, town of about 2200 and I became a public defender and uh, I uh, I did that for about four years and I was one of the original class of public defenders uh, with a partner who's still a very very close friend and then we were able to start a law firm and they wanted us to stay on public defending so we continued to do that with a contract for the state but my decision to do that you know it was uh, I didn't think I'd like it for a long time, even though the money obviously was really good in the big firms. I didn't think I'd really like it in the long term. And I just had this sense, uh, well, kind of like you, I wanted to be in court. Uh, you know, there's something wonderful about being a trial lawyer on the prosecution side and on the defense side. And you and I both know that prosecutors really respect good, honest defenders and good, honest public defenders really respect good, honest prosecutors because we each have a very, very important role to play in the criminal justice system. And it's really important to our country that we have a fair and square criminal justice system and uh, people are held to account, but they're also defended. But I love I love doing trial work. And I went there largely because I wanted to be uh, close to where my family was in Western Massachusetts, just down the road. But I also thought I wanted to get started, start my own firm and just be responsible for myself. You know, I remember, Trey, I was working in as a summer associate in one of the big Washington law firms, and I was working on a Supreme Court brief. So I'm thinking I'm kind of a big shot. 
here I am, second year law student, working on a Supreme Court brief. Well, you know what my work was? I was doing footnote research on the law, on the fifth, a 50 state survey of what the common law of nuisance was. And everything I was doing was going to go in a single footnote, right? So here I was working on a Supreme Court case, but you look under the hood, I'm really researching a footnote, all right? So I much preferred the responsibility of running my own cases. You know, so, you know, I was in the district court in White River Junction, Vermont, not the most prestigious place uh, for Wall Street folks uh, 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 to be. But on the other hand, I was responsible for making my own decisions. And I had this direct relationship with my client. And um, I like that. I like the responsibility and I liked the interaction that I was able directly to have with my own client. So that was the basis of my decision. And in looking back, it, it was not, as you mentioned, a financially lucrative decision, <laughs> uh, but I had a good time. We're going to take a quick break. More of my conversation with Senator Peter Welch is coming up. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. It sounds to me, up to this point, your life is going fabulously well. Uh, one of the most decorated, if I understand you correctly, sports stars in the history of your neighborhood. You're on a boat to Portugal. It sounds idyllic. So how in the world did you wind up in state politics in Vermont? Well, you know, Vermont is such a small state. This, is, again, is I, I think it's really been formative of how I, you know, you saw me when I was in Congress. Um, it was very Republican then. Um, and my county, uh, I think once in the history of the whole county, elected a Democratic state senator. But I ran in 1980. Uh, so I'm older than you. And it was the Reagan landslide. But in our county, we elected three senators. And I realized that if I campaigned really hard and met a lot of people, all I had to do was be their second or third choice and I could still get elected. And I became so many people's second and third choice that I came in first. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that was a thrill for me. And honestly, I still remember that. I started out in this uh, beautiful uh, state capital. Uh, the Senate in Vermont is 30 members. And it was Republican majority. And, you know, I'm going to describe an incident that um, made a real impression on me that reminds me, it's a little reminiscent of that town meeting story I told you. I won a big upset. It was a big Republican year and I won. So it was regarded as a big deal. And, you know, I kind of thought myself a bit of a big deal, right? I showed <laughs> in, in, in Montpelier and I'm ready to rumble. And the leaders of the Senate were Republicans and it's coming around the committee assignment time. So I decided I'll go for broke. I want to be on the finance committee. Well, lo and behold, they put me on the finance committee. Right. And I said, I'm doomed. Why? Because now I knew I had to cooperate. They gave me a seat at the table. And, you know, it was just such a gracious confident decision on the part of the Republican leadership to give this new upstart, a Democrat, an opportunity to be 
constructive on a major committee right away. And uh, it really made an impression on me. You know, this was like, they didn't have to do that. And they didn't do it, quote, for me. They did it because they had some confidence that uh, I wanted to work hard and that having me at at the table would be better ultimately to, to get things done. So fast forward four years, I get elected. I go from being a new senator to being the Senate president. And I was the first Democrat to be elected Senate president. I appointed Republicans to chair committees. Wow. And it was because of my memory of how I was treated. And I didn't do it. You know, sometimes in Washington, I've told some of our colleagues that I did that. They accused me of being a good guy. That's why I did it. It it had nothing to do with that. I really saw, by the way I was treated, that if you really give an opportunity for people you disagree with to have a real seat at the table and participate and contribute, and by the way, it takes good faith on their part too, right? You've got to accept that trust and honor it. Then your prospects for getting things done where you can get both sides involved and on board and have it be a durable accomplishment increase. So that was the reason I did it. It was to be effective. It wasn't because I was uh, I was a nice guy like you. Well, I'm not that nice of a guy because I'm going to ask you about something that nice guys would not ask you about. I'm sure that people listening are thinking, okay, he sounds like a really, really good guy. I understand how he's been successful. If I If my research is correct, you have also lost political races. Two. How do you maintain your optimism, your enthusiasm? How do you not let that jade or 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 color your perspective on life? I mean, you, you seem like such an affable guy. It makes you wonder, how could he lose a political race? What did you learn from losing that maybe you would not have learned from winning? You know, when you, you lose... You've got to dust yourself off and get back up and 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 move on again. You know, I lost uh, two races. I in 1988, I ran in uh, a bit that was the first time the congressional seat had been open in Vermont. We only have one in Vermont, so it's rare. Bernie Sanders ran as an independent. I was in a four-way primary, and I lost by 262 votes. Uh, okay, so and it was a tough primary, um, and. I did not contest that election, by the way. I had confidence that our town clerks know how to count. And two years later, uh, I ran for governor. You know, it was a very uphill race, but I came very close but lost. And I was talking to you earlier about you're not making yourself a center of attention. You get really tested on that in a campaign because you do put your heart and soul into it. Also, you ask other people to put their hearts and their soul into it and their faith in you for their aspirations. So it's it's a very emotionally demanding uh, and intense time. But on the other hand, it still is not about you as the candidate. It just isn't. And if you kind of understand that, I think it helps you try to find another way to be useful. And there's lots of different ways than being in public office where people can make very substantial and significant contributions uh, uh, to the public good. So I'm not diminishing that it wasn't hard because, you know, I was a younger man then. I was really wanting to be in public service at the statewide level. It was important to me personally. 
uh, but it wasn't necessarily essential to the universe uh, that I win. And Vermont survived quite nicely uh, without me being (laughs) elected in each of those two times. And, uh, you know, I then was in my law practice for some time. And uh, and later, uh, I got appointed to the old job that I had in the state Senate. I mean, this is interesting. I went back to the state Senate and I'd been gone by this point so long that my colleagues forgot why they were mad at me. And they <laughs> they reelected me, me to be Senate president. <laughs> wow. You have a colleague named John Thune. You were saying that you narrowly lost and did not ask for a recount. John Thune also narrowly lost a Senate race. Right. Not unlike your state, being in the House and being in the Senate is about the same thing because you got to run statewide. That's right. I think Senator Thune opted not to ask for a, I mean, it sounds so crazy in 2023, whatever year we're in. I mean, mean, this is the year where even when you do lose, you say you won. And you guys could have asked for a recount and didn't do it. No, literally, that is probably small town. You know, John's from South Dakota. And uh, you, you know the people who are doing the job. You trust them. You know, there's a wonderful, it's so wonderful to trust people. It's just an easier way to live. And I certainly I th- I think there's a lot of similarity in kind of the rural values that uh, probably John grew up with that folks in Vermont have. And by the way, on the topic of John Thune, he's the athlete I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a trip with him. And he ran more before I got up each morning than I have run in my life. You, you are yeah, right. Yeah. He, he is an athlete. So, uh, and like you, also a very decent human being. All right. The difference between the House and the Senate. Well, there's there's two things, and this is probably particularly the times we're at. Number one. You know, as a Democrat, the House is a Republican majority, and you and I both know being in the majority in the House really is a significant advantage. Being in the minority is not. Um, And uh, especially this year, for me in the House, you know, we're talking politics here, but there's a lot of conflict, and it's over things that I think that a lot of the culture issues, as opposed to bread and butter economic issues, how we get better education, how we make jobs better, how we have more affordable health care, all these things that motivate me. Um, you know, the culture wars that are important issues uh, for lots of folks. Um, that's not really why I got involved in politics. And that's the dominant thing. The second thing is I think we're playing a really risky game over there as we did in 2011, when you and I were together here in Congress over the debt ceiling and you know our conflicts on the budget. So I'm happy to not be in the minority. That's a long way around of saying something pretty simple. I'll tell you, the Senate I'm really enjoying, and it's reminded me a little bit of this when I was in the state Senate. It's smaller, your relationships are more intimate. When I'm talking to my Republican colleagues, and I think they feel this about talking to their Democratic colleagues, they don't need permission to get on a bill with the Democrat. It's not going to be in, whether it's in conflict with what Mitch McConnell wants or doesn't want. I really feel talking to my colleagues that they have the authority, agency, and confidence to decide, hey, yeah, Peter, I'll do that with you or not. So like already I'm co-sponsoring legislation with Rick Scott from Florida. I'm co-sponsoring legislation, you know, on the drug problem 
which is severe all around, uh, with Ted Cruz. I'm uh, co-sponsoring legislation on invasive species with Mike Braun, uh, and we're going to be all in to work on these things. And that is like reminding me of how much pleasure you can get in doing your work of legislating as opposed to just arguing back and forth uh, when there's going to be no resolution impossible. Uh, so the small, the smaller size, the intimacy of the Senate, uh, I think the tradition here that if you want to get things done, you actually do have to reach out to the other side uh, to get some folks uh, to join you, uh, to give it merit and, 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 uh, and possibility. So I like that. I'm really feeling good about my colleagues, both sides of the aisle, by and large, and I'm feeling good about the prospects of passing legislation. And by the way, I think as things move on, it's, it's tough in the House right now. It's very divided and, and, and very uh, conflict intense. But at a certain point, if we pass some bipartisan legislation over to the House, then I think Speaker McCarthy's going to, if it has Republican support on it, then I think Speaker McCarthy's going to have to make a decision. Does he want to put some points on the board and get some bipartisan bills done over there? So I actually have some confidence that we might in the Senate be able to get some constructive legislation over to the House and that that would be taken up and, and passed. Because I think some of those Republicans in the House would take comfort that there were some Republicans in the Senate who are on board. It wouldn't just be a partisan deal. More of my interview with Senator Peter Welch is next. Speaking of the House, if my research is correct or my memory is correct, you were on the House Intelligence Committee towards the end of your time in the House, which, right. at least for me, was one of the more interesting, productive committee assignments that I had. Do you want to be on Senate Intel, and is it a long, arduous path to get to Intel in the Senate? Well, in fact, I share that view with you. I really found serving on the Intelligence Committee to be tremendous. Uh, I was there during the Russia investigation, uh, which was a rough time because that was all caught up in all the impeachment warfare. Uh, but also I was there after that. And it was a place, as you know, uh, where it's intensely interesting, intensely important, and by and large bipartisan because uh, the national security questions um, have kind of welded us together. So I did really enjoy it for the reasons. And I actually remember a conversation with you after you got appointed to the Intelligence Committee and I was asking you about it because I was starting to think I'd be interested in it. So that's number one. Number two, I would have, I did seek to get on the uh, Intelligence Committee in the Senate. There was only one vacancy. It's a 5149 Senate. Uh, so there really wasn't an opportunity, but uh, Senator Warren is very, very, I think uh, uh, he's doing a great job, and I will continue to pursue that. How long it is, who knows? But I hope I have the credentials for my service on the Intelligence Committee in the House. But it's a, it was a, it's a, it continues to be a great place. Well, the the number one credential I think for being on the Intelligence Committees is: Are you willing to go behind closed doors where there are no cameras and roll up your sleeves and do hard work? And I don't think anybody would question that Peter Welch is willing to do that. So yeah. it, it is Actually, not you know, a glamorous committee. Yeah. No, it, in, in what you say, the no cameras, it really is you know, pretty refreshing. You walk in and you're not thinking about that. And your colleagues aren't thinking about it. So you're trying to figure out, a, you know, what's a good question? How do I get the information we need? So I agree with you about that. All right. I, I got to let you get back to work. And as you pointed out, I don't work anymore. So uh, I, I 
I could sit here and talk to you all day, but you have committee assignments and things. I want, I want, I, I doubt you remember this, Senator, but I do remember it. It's one of my more vivid memories from the House. You mentioned that you, you know, obviously you care about what people call social or cultural issues, but, but that's not what motivated you to go into public service. We were having a hearing about one of those social cultural issues. And it was very heated and very animated. Uh, and dare I say, at, at times ad hominem. And I remember Peter Welch in that, that un, unflappable way. You never raised your voice. I never heard you raise your voice. You said, look, I, I am making an effort to understand where you are coming from. And you are turning and looking to the Republicans. I, 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 I don't agree with you. I don't think I'm ever going to agree with you, but I'm making an effort to understand where you are coming from. And the reason it stands out to me, Senator, is how rare that is. Not only were you not impeaching or assailing the motives of people on the other side, I think to the person, Republicans would say, yes, Peter Welch is not going to wind up where we are, but at least he's trying to understand what motivates us to be where we are. Do I have that right? I mean, that that's certainly the way it looked to us, is that you were trying to do what a good lawyer does, which is understand where the other side is coming from. You know, Trey, it's kind of you to remember that, but uh, I, I, I do try to do that. I mean, I try to do that just in daily interactions, but especially in politics. You know, what I've done with my colleagues here is we have similar challenges where we're trying to help our constituents deal with similar problems. So, like, I'll give an example of broadband. I'm rural Vermont. I helped start the Rural Broadband Caucus. We had 20 Republicans, 20 Democrats. And I got that started by asking Republicans who represent rural areas much more than Democrats, how's broadband? I didn't say, why did you vote for Trump? Okay. And if I'm asking, how's your broadband? Then they start giving a description of a nightmare situation that is similar to what we had in Vermont and create some common ground. And then as a good lawyer trying to understand the other person's case is the only way you can then start having some conversation that has as its goal narrowing the differences and hopefully resolving the differences. And there's a tendency, I think, in a lot of our interactions, particularly in politics, to essentially intensify the conflict rather than to to mute it and to work towards resolution. And of course, it's gotten tougher, I think, with social media that amplifies the conflict. It's gotten tougher with social media when, you know, some of our colleagues, quite frankly, both sides of the aisle, play to that social media excess. And it kind of gets in the way of getting things done. But, you know, when we look back, all of us, the things that we remember fondly are the things where we came together and actually got something done. And we forget about whose position was what at the beginning. We just get that feeling that, hey, we did something that made our volunteer fire department a better place. 
we made our grammar school better for our kids, you know? So it's that desire to basically have an outcome where all of us can be proud uh, that I think is so important for all of us to remember, you know, not just in politics, uh, but just in life as well. All right, I'm going to let you go with this question, and it's going to take you back to the courtroom. It's going to be one of those long hypotheticals that you probably uh, ask uh, from time to time or objected to when the other side asks. All right, so what I hear is an affable guy who spent a lot of his youth in the trenches uh, fighting for people who did not uh, look like him and did not come from the same background that he came from. Uh, an authentically progressive guy who is not mad about it and, and doesn't engage in ad hominem attacks. So I guess my question is, can someone like that still survive in politics? I mean, you, you you've done it. You're the, in the in the you know you're a politician. Being in the U.S. Senate's about as high as you can get. I can only think of one job higher than that. But for somebody wondering, can I be all of that and still not? mad all the time or fighting with the other side all the time, whatever side you're on, is that still a path, the one that you have taken? The answer is yes. But you know what, Trey, here's the, here's, each of us has our own personal responsibility to decide how to be in this life that we live for as long as we live it. And, you know, I hear this, especially from younger people who are dismayed about legitimate problems. You know, they get out of school with a mountain of debt. They think the planet is burning up, and it is. Uh, They're dismayed at what's going on in Washington. And, you know, when I was back looking at what the challenges were for African-American citizens who couldn't even get a house, they'd get fired for no reason, they couldn't get anything, uh, any kind of justice, and was inspired by them where each day they would face the day and try to do the best they could. The decision each of us makes is how we face what's before us. Do we get up, face the day, and do the best we can? And my view, we do. And the reason we do is because the alternative (laughs) is no fun. You know, the problems we face are serious, and the question is, will we face them? And if you do, and you're just motivated to try to make a difference, I think it just makes you a stronger, better uh, person where you have some joy in life, despite how bad some of the challenges that we face are. So what kind of person do you want to be? That's really a choice that's for you or for me to make uh, and for everybody to do the best they can. And I say that with a lot of humility, knowing that a lot of people's circumstances are much more difficult than mine or yours. But on the other hand, that decision, how you face it, and I've seen people who have had so much more adversity than anything I've ever faced, inspire me by their positive approach to life, by their capacity to love others in their life, their ability to take joy in helping another person along the way, that I look at them and I say, you know what, that's the kind of person I want to be. So we've got some capacity individually and responsibility individually to decide how do we want to live this life. You know, Senator, as you were saying that, I'm thinking back to the family members of the Nine men and women who were murdered at Mother Emanuel Church in my beloved home state of South Carolina. And and they forgave the killer. 
and I and I sit there and contrast that with some people's inability to simply enjoy Thanksgiving lunch with people who did not vote the same way they voted. I mean, I just I mean, you talk about going through something to lose a family member yeah. to an act of violence rooted in racial animus and to say, I forgive you. And yet some people can't share a meal together because yeah. they I don't. Well. I'm going to end on a happy note. What do you want for your birthday other than for people to quit, you know, wishing you happy birthday, quit singing to you? I, I know you're a modest guy. You probably don't want anybody, but I think it's tomorrow, isn't it? Um, it is tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I was part of the John Yarmouth Bourbon Caucus here. So maybe I'll have a little sip of bourbon for my birthday. <laughs> Senator Peter Welch from the great state of Vermont, one of the more enjoyable colleagues I had. He's now gone on the dark side to the United States Senate, but we will be watching you and thank you for joining us. You take care of yourself. Thanks a lot, Trey. Bye-bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.